Global Voices on Taiwan. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Global Voices on Taiwan. I'm Rath Wang, the news producer and anchor. Hello, everybody. My name is Vincent Chow. I'm a spokesperson for the Lie Campaign. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be exploring with you on how the latest world events from near and afar, uh, how to impact Taiwan, and how this island nation shakes the world. We will continue to invite a number of international journalists, experts, and policymakers in future episodes to talk about Taiwan and to share their thoughts on current events here. With us today is Marcin Jajewski, head of the Taiwan office of the European Value Center for Security Policy. Marcin is fluent in seven languages. Can you talk a bit about that, Marcin? Raph, first and foremost, thank you so much for having me on the episode uh, this morning. Well, you mentioned my language skills. I uh, come from Poland, and that is something that is quite typical to the European experience. You know, we have to be aware that our mother tongues are uh, minority languages, usually spoken only within a rather limited population of our country. So uh, I definitely benefited from language-forward uh, design of uh, curricula in Europe, and it's great to have moved from a, a country that celebrates multilingualism to education to Taiwan, a country that celebrates multilingualism in everyday experience. Well, thank you so much, uh, Marcin. Um, well, today's topic is really to talk about NATO and to talk about Europe and European security and how all of this impacts Taiwan. And I wanted to hear your perspectives to start. Number one, on how do Europeans see NATO? Like, what is NATO's primary purpose? Um, has NATO provided security for people across Europe? That's the first part. And then second part is to push back a little bit and to hear your thoughts uh, as, you know, a Central European perspective on this narrative that is sort of prevailing here in Taiwan on how NATO has instigated this war in Ukraine and how uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine was started by NATO. I mean, that sounds preposterous, but how do you see it? I think that it is important to understand that Europe is not uh, a monolith. It is not homogenous. It, does, it means that not everyone in Europe thinks the same and not all countries in Europe had a, a similar historical experience, which means that a political landscape in European countries today is quite divergent. However, when we look at NATO from a central European perspective, we can understand it as an alliance that seeks to foster security and political cooperation, not only within Europe, but in a transatlantic context, meaning bringing Europe and North America closer together. And uh, particularly in the 1990s, when Central European countries began their transition to democracy, and uh, here as a side note, this is something that Taiwan and Central Eastern European countries have in common. Our transitions to democracy began at a relatively similar time. So in the 1990s, the possibility of membership in the NATO was seen as a way of returning to Europe. It was seen as a way of really cementing the processes of democratization also in the international arena. And I think that this links well to your second question. When we think about NATO, we have to remember that you have to opt in to become a member of NATO. You are not a member of NATO by coercion. So when we think about, for example, Ukraine's bid for NATO membership, we should understand it as something that comes out of uh, the volition of the people of Ukraine. They do want to join 
um, the alliance, as did uh, people of Central Eastern European countries throughout the past uh, 30 years uh, over the course of democratic consolidation. So when we say that the war in uh, Ukraine was artificially uh, created by the NATO, we inherently take away the agency of Ukrainian people. And this is a big flaw. So um, I think that Ukraine is uh, just trying to catch up with other countries in the region and also become a part of this larger uh, security and political bloc that NATO constitutes. So the way you've described it is NATO has been sort of like a security blanket for countries that are undergoing democratic transitions. And what we've seen in Europe, at least, is that the more democratic countries are, the more they feel a sense of belonging, not only within this European values idea, but also within NATO itself. And so that was reflected, I think, after 2014 during the Maiden protests in, in Kiev. Um, so I guess the point, and, and I just wanted to emphasize this, if um, this question would be, do you think NATO has been an important security guarantee for countries that are undergoing democratic transitions? Definitely. NATO is an important security guarantor for all of its members, but especially countries where processes of democratic consolidation are still ongoing uh, for countries which might be more vulnerable due to this transition. And uh, we are seeing that countries that have come out of the previous authoritarian forms of government have an active interest in becoming members of NATO. So that's reflected, for example, in the ongoing bid for membership that was expressed by Ukraine, but also, for example, by Georgia that has also spoken about its uh, potential to join NATO in the future. You mentioned a very interesting point in terms of the agency of the people of Ukraine. Um, we see comparisons with that in Taiwan, and NATO's been talking a lot about Taiwan recently. Why is that? I think that there is a realization within NATO and uh, in general within international institutions that the global balance of power is increasingly shifting towards the Indo-Pacific. Uh, also, in the transatlantic context, we are seeing the consequences of the rise of China. China is trying to uh, make its footprint more pronounced in the transatlantic context. And that's why we come to understand that transatlantic security that NATO seeks to safeguard is inherently connected to peace and stability in the in the Pacific region. And of course, uh, tensions in the Taiwan Strait that an increasingly belligerent Beijing is exacerbating are of primary concern to members of the NATO. As we speak, we are uh, now considering the aftermath of the Vilnius summit of the NATO. It is uh, quite important that for the second year in a row, following last year's Madrid summit, we see that four heads of uh, Indo-Pacific countries, Japan, South Korea, Australia, and New Zealand, uh, were uh, present at the summit. So um, this is just a very tangible manifestation of the dynamic, which I just described, of a realization of the interconnectedness of the two regions. You mentioned the word of the day, China. Um, how does this actually <laughs> relate to, <laughs> to Taiwan? Because you talked a bit earlier about um, the will of the people of the Ukraine, and also we have the will of the people of Taiwan. Can you compare that so that our international audience can understand a bit? I think that uh, Taiwan, of course, finds itself in a very difficult international position, in meaning that unlike Ukraine, Taiwan is uh, not recognized as an independent sovereign state by majority of countries around the world, which also limits Taiwan's potential to participate in international organizations. Uh, we see multiple examples of that, uh, for example, uh, in the UN and its agencies. 
but a bid for Taiwan to, for example, cooperate with Quad countries under a Quad Plus formula uh, is often seen as equally controversial. So I don't think that uh, it is really an apples-to-apples comparison uh, between Ukraine and Taiwan. However, we have seen ingenuity of uh, Taiwanese people and Taiwanese government to try to broaden uh, Taiwan's international space and try to uh, foster connections with international organizations, multilateral formats, and also bilaterally, which I think can be uh, compared to what we are seeing in Ukraine. Having liberated itself from authoritarian rule as one of the uh, Soviet republics, Ukraine is trying to figure out its own place in the international system. And so is Taiwan now in its uh, fourth decade since processes of democratization began. I mean, I completely agree with what you said, Marcin. I mean, Taiwan is not Ukraine. Ukraine is, in a sense, not Taiwan. I mean, we have a completely different security, uh, economics, geostrategic situation. Um, but certainly, I think both our countries are under face from authoritarian neighbors. And, you know, you work at the European Values Center. And how would you see European values as a whole when we take this in the context of enroaching or increasing authoritarianism anywhere in the world? And what are the steps you would propose for countries to work together to sort of push back against these authoritarian tendencies that are being spread around the world today? There is a number of ways in which we can define European values, but the most parsimonious definition of what European value stands for is democracy, human rights, and the rule of law. Oh, it sounds and like global values. Absolutely. Yeah. So these are values that uh, globally, uh, we try to uphold and that authoritarian powers globally try to undermine and, and redefine. That's why I think that there is a space for an organization called European Values Center to uh, meaningfully uh, contribute to the civil society fabric in Taiwan because we are not uh, imposing values that are not recognized in Taiwan. We no, are we trying love to these make values. a connection. <laughs> exactly. We are really trying to, to emphasize that these values can be as global as they are uh, European, as you rightly remark. And that's why it's so important to uh, foster cooperation that is cross-regional and truly international to uphold these values. Of course, uh, there are domestic challenges and we have to respect sovereignty of all countries that uh, participate in the process of safeguarding these values. But generally, uh, multilateral frameworks can be uh, very useful in upholding the international rule-based order. We've seen a lot of that in terms of, you know, your good work, Marcin, with the Czech Republic and Taiwan. There was a phone call earlier this year with the president of the Czech Republic. Um, how do you see that? Is this because China is driving these countries, especially Eastern European countries that don't have a historic tie with Taiwan to come closer? I think that even though Central Eastern European countries might not have a clear historical link to Taiwan, there are similarities in our respective historical trajectories. I have already emphasized that uh, Taiwan and Central Eastern European countries began the process of transitioning to democracy around the same time. In political science, we say that Taiwan and Central Eastern European countries belong to the so-called third wave of democratization, which is the largest wave of democratization that we have ever witnessed. In One of the newest waves. Exactly. So it, it began with the revolution of carnations in, in Portugal and uh, has continued throughout uh, the 1990s. And I think that it is precisely that uh, similar uh, historical legacy that... Uh, allows uh, Central Eastern European people to really uh, empathize with the experience of Taiwan. And I think that the uh, expanding cooperation between countries like 
the Czech Republic and Lithuania rests not only on pragmatic considerations. I mean, these countries recognize Taiwan as one of the economic and technological powerhouses of our increasingly interconnected world, but also on normative considerations, meaning that especially amid the ongoing war in Ukraine, it becomes crystal clear that um, regional authoritarian hegemons are trying to undermine values that we cannot afford to take for granted simply because um, the fight for them is still so new and so fresh in our respective national psyches. And uh, the, the confluence of these two factors, pragmatic and normative, is what makes those bonds uh, really uh, meaningful and sustainable. On values indeed. I think that's a great point to make. And I just wanted to pivot a little bit uh, to China. And I think, you know, China is tough for us. It's tough for countries anywhere in the world. I was in the United States when attitudes towards China really shifted. I mean, there was hope and optimism after um, China joined the WTO that economic liberalization would one day lead to political liberalization and that would lead to a more peaceful and secure uh, region um, here in the Indo-Pacific. But unfortunately, I think those expectations and hopes were dashed under the increasingly authoritarian rule of Xi Jinping in recent years. Um, that's very much a U.S.-centric perspective, I understand that. But I am curious, from a European perspective, how is China seen today? And um, how do Europeans feel um, uh, how the long-term trajectory of Chinese or Xi Jinping's rule could take there? Are there concern, not only at the risk posed towards Taiwan, but to democratic values all over the world? I think that what you just described is not only an American perspective. I think that uh, a lot of uh, similar sentiments can uh, be felt around Europe. Um, of course, overall, Europe is not as hawkish in its approach to China, and there is still a desire to uh, try to engage with China meaningfully, not only in terms of economics, but also shared global concerns. So, for example, uh, cooperation on biodiversity and challenges related to the climate crisis remain quite high up on the European agenda when it comes to engaging China. Um, at the same time, this idea of uh, achieving uh, democracy or uh, transitioning to a more democratic system of rule through an economic approach is not only something that was uh, believed in in Washington, D.C. Uh, in Europe, we have often spoken of uh, Wandel durch Handel, so uh, transition through trade. Uh, which is, um, as you may hear uh, from, from the words I just uttered, a, a German concept. And I think that uh, a current challenge in Europe is that the continent really needs to wake up to this new geopolitical reality where we recognize that Wandel durch Handel is not really uh, viable. I think that, it's happening. I mean, I'm sorry mm -hmm. to you know, interrupt, but I think it's happening. I mean, we've seen the actions that Germany has now taken through not only their defense ministry, but foreign ministry, these recent actions they've adopted through this new strategy on China uh, they'd have in place. So I, I do think that transition is happening step by step. Do, do you feel that's the case? Uh, absolutely. However, one challenge when it comes to building a European approach towards China is that um, the European Union rests on uh, the idea of a consensus. And it's not always easy to build consensus when you have 27 member states that have to agree on a, on a single approach. And uh, I think that China was actually very cunning in uh, exploiting this difficulty in consensus building by implementing uh, divisive formats such as uh, 
17, 16, and now 14 yeah. plus 1. That's right. That's why uh, finding a common position of the European Union on Taiwan might be difficult as well. Previously, I had worked um, quite closely with European countries, not only in a foreign ministry perspective, but also uh, what I was working for think tanks and, and for um, the Democratic Progressive Party. And I, I do feel that European attitudes have shifted somewhere. And every European country has their own unique historical relationship with China. I mean, France was one of the first countries in the world to recognize the People's Republic. Um, and the first, I think, one of the first Western countries uh, to do so. And so there is has been a sense, I think, in Paris in years past that France gets China better than many other European countries. Although I tend to think that even with the Macron visit, uh, that idea has slowly shifted. Not the idea that they got China, but the idea that their assumptions have always been right about China. I think those perceptions will continue to shift um, as we see um, actions that um, the Chinese have taken, the PRC has taken, not only in, in Hong Kong, the South China Sea, the Taiwan Strait here in Xinjiang, uh, but also being driven sort of by public opinion in Europe that has really turned away from that. And, and I think there is an increasing similarity and I can't speak on behalf of Europeans, but this is my perspective, that many people around the world feel in respect to Russia and China and how they sort of stand on the same side, so to say, on, on, on spreading this authoritarian value. So that's my perspective, but I'll be curious to hear yours, Marcin. I think that it is uh, really crucial to understand that uh, other than moving away from the van der Druchhandel perspective, another geopolitical reality to which Europeans are waking up is that there is an increasing confluence of strategic interests between Beijing and Moscow. So what you mentioned about China and Russia standing together in their attempts to spread the authoritarian agenda is, is very true. Marcin, I am curious to bring um, this a little back to what you're doing here in Taipei. So the European Center for Values has been in Taipei for a few years now. Um, you've been very active in the think tank sphere. You've been very active in public speaking. Can you share a bit about what are some of your priorities here in Taiwan? What are some of the work that you've been engaged in? And personally for you, I mean, what's been some of your most rewarding achievements or accomplishments here in Taipei? Thank you for this question. So we are now in our second year of operations of our Taiwan office of the European Values Center for Security Policy. And we seek to position ourselves as the main hub for um, political and uh, social exchange between Taiwan and Central Eastern Europe. And uh, we do it primarily by engaging members of the civil society, academics, and also uh, civil servants in relevant departments, including the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the Ministry of uh, National Defense. Mm -hmm. And I would say that one of the most uh, rewarding uh, projects on which I worked was uh, my contribution to the recent visit of uh, Marketa Pekarova Adamova, the Speaker of the Czech House of uh, Deputies. Um, it was one of the largest international delegations that came to Taiwan in its recent history. And one of the events that we as EVC organized during her visit was uh, a conference at the National Taiwan University. And I really believe in the power of uh, engaging young people and harnessing the power of um, political socialization. You know, people who are uh, at, uh, in college, people who are still in education um, are still uh, developing their political selves. And um, it was uh, really great to see how excited uh, students and faculty at NTU were about uh, this a possibility to connect with European perspectives. You've been very involved in also bringing Ukraine closer to Taiwan. Um, um, we talked about that earlier in the podcast. Um, what more moves do you feel can bring the two countries closer? We sent the first medical team from Asia over to Ukraine to help support uh, 
medical um, uh, issues in Ukraine. I thought that was a very positive step forward. So it's a great question. So I will turn to my right and I will look at you, Vincent, given your uh, position in the city council. And uh, I'm doing this because I think that as we move forward and try to build uh, stronger and more sustainable ties between Taiwan and Ukraine, the role of uh, sister to sister, uh, sister city to sister city diplomacy, the role of subnational diplomacy uh, really uh, cannot be undervalued. I think that when it comes to government to government engagement or engagements between the capitals, there might still be some uh, hurdles as there is still hope in Ukraine that China could meaningfully participate in the post-war recovery. Uh, however, um, politicians at subnational level have much more flexibility to engage with Taiwan. And I think that the basis of any meaningful relationship should be people-to-people -people ties. And these are, uh, uh, and the subnational diplomacy format really lends itself well to uh, building uh, mutual understanding and fostering those uh, interpersonal uh, connections. A lot has been achieved uh, in that regard, and I still see a lot of potential as we move forward. Well, mission received. <laughs> Thank you so very much, Marcin. I mean, we appreciate your time. You've been a wonderful resource in sharing with not only the Taiwanese public, but the international community, um, the values that bring Europe and Taiwan close together. So I'm extremely grateful for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Thank you Marcin.